Hello and welcome. This is Hard Reset. Today on Hard Reset, we're going to be talking about some of the latest stories that we're watching on the misinformation front. But first, a group of three connected debt collection companies were permanently banned from the debt collection industry last week as part of a settlement with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and the New York Attorney General. The companies, Northern Resolution Group, Enhanced Acquisitions, and Delray Capital were accused of using illegal tactics to collect tens of millions of dollars from millions of customers all across the country. The companies, which operated from Buffalo, New York, bought portfolios of debt for pennies on the dollar and then added $200 to the balance of every debt they acquired. I'm here with Big If True founder Molly Bryant, who wrote about the settlement last week in a story that you can find on BigIfTrue.org. So, Molly, first of all, what is it that these companies really do? We call them a, a debt collection firm. What does that mean in fact? As I understand it, the company will purchase up accounts from companies whose whose customers do owe money. They basically buy the, the rights to collect on those delinquent accounts. How does all that work? Yeah, so basically that's that's what they do. They collect these uh, giant portfolios of you know thousands of of debts for pennies on the dollar, and then they either collect on it themselves or they will kind of outsource that to a, a third party debt collector. Sometimes they will also uh, sue in in local county courts. And so, tell me what happened in this. Uh... In this instance, in these circumstances, this company or, or this group of uh, individuals, what was it they did wrong? What were the violations of, of industry rules or laws that happened? Yeah. So um, first, I'll just tell you kind of kind of what they did. Um, and it's these three companies, uh, Northern Resolution Group, Enhanced Acquisitions, and Delray Capital. So the first thing they did was they bought these, uh, like we were talking about just now, these portfolios of, of debt for pennies on the dollar. Um, and then they either collected on them using those three companies or they outsourced the collection to um, this network of companies that weren't connected to uh, Northern Resolution Enhanced Acquisition and Delray uh, on on paper. Like on paper, it didn't look like they were associated at all. Um, but the individual who kind of ran this scheme, his name is uh, Douglas McKinnon. Um, he actually kind of oversaw that network of, of companies in a way. So he would sometimes provide them with uh, payroll funds, funds for payroll. Uh, he would select who was uh, managing the companies and also provide them with spoofing software, which kind of brings them to what we're going to talk about next, was, which is the actual illegal stuff they did. So... For each debt that they purchased, they arbitrarily tacked on $200. So what that means is someone would be confronted by these companies 
with a claim that they owed way more than they actually owed. I was looking at some uh, complaints against the companies on the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's uh, database for complaints. And I found one that said this individual in Louisiana said that she had, she or he, um, had originally owed $1,500. They were trying to collect $3,100 from her, which is, you know, twice as much. All we gleaned from court records is that they were definitely adding $200 to each. So I'm not sure what happened with this individual, but I just want to put it out there to say, you know, there might have been more inflation going on, although we can't confirm that with what we have. So that was one thing they did. The other thing they did was they instructed all of the collection agencies to misrepresent who they were. So they posed as law enforcement uh, officials who would threaten to arrest folks if they didn't pay back the funds immediately. They would pose as uh, folks from the court um, or, or government and also threaten to sue or arrest folks who didn't pay. That obviously is illegal. Based on some of the complaints I've been looking at uh, that were filed with CFPB, it kind of looked like they also were harassing people, just calling them repeatedly over and over and over again, which you can't do under federal law. Like You can't harass people. And you also are not allowed to you know, act like you're a cop to collect money from people. Yeah, those are some things that really stuck out to me that you had people who worked for this for this collection company actually disguising to, to misrepresent themselves, as you said, uh, to be court officers, law enforcement personnel, and actually threatening people with arrest if they didn't pay. I mean, this seems like it is, I, I don't know much about the regulation of the industry myself, but it just seems wildly out there. Well, it it certainly does raise questions about how um, about oversight of the industry, um, because one of the things that, you know, you can see if you look at the, the court documents for this. So originally, the complaint that was filed by CFPB and the New York Attorney General um, regarding these companies and the two individuals who ran them. That was filed in 2016, and it said that this whole uh, scheme had started at least in 2009. So it had been going on for, uh, you know, about seven years by the time they they filed this complaint. And that's a significant amount of time to keep, um, you know, running basically like a fraudulent scheme that... Um, affected millions of Americans. It's also really weird to me that they added $200 to everything. Like, that was just their fee that they were getting. <laughs> yeah, it's really something, but it's actually not uncommon at all. Um, I, I should say for our listeners, uh, this is kind of an issue that we're following and and uh, one of our reporters is working on a story about uh, debt collection tactics right now it's not uncommon for them to misrepresent mi misrepresent the amount that's owed then there was a network of other companies you said they that they did not appear to be uh, 
associated with on paper at all, but that this guy went as far as to micromanage exactly who was running the office. And you said that he sent spoofing software? Yeah, in some cases, he would um, provide the office with spoofing software. And this was so that they could uh, make it look like the Los Angeles County uh, court was calling and claim, make it easier to claim that they were um, calling from that location and make their lies more believable. So we have a pattern, I guess, uh, in these complaints or, or talked about in the settlement here of the employees of this company would disguise themselves as as officers of the court and threaten uh, lawsuits or arrest. Uh, can you give me an example of, of one time that they did that or, or any evidence behind uh, that claim? Yeah, I think one thing I, I thought was interesting uh, was there in the the original complaint from 2016, there was actual evidence of uh, them instructing their uh, collection agents to do this stuff. And there was an actual script, and I'm going to read that real quick. Uh, The script is from Del Rey, and it says... You need to be aware of multiple fraud charges being filed against you in blank county. It is imperative I speak with you to debrief you on your case and retain a statement in your defense. Failure to respond will result in you forfeiting your right to settle this case on a voluntary basis, and it will be forwarded for prosecution. Yeah, and I imagine part of why this stuff works is the average person might not be familiar with criminal proceedings and how they work. I mean, another thing they did was uh, they threatened someone with arrest for check fraud, um, which you don't commit by having a debt. And uh, they told that individual that she didn't have time to get a lawyer to uh, defend herself in court. And so she had to pay it right away, which is also not a thing. It's not how how things work. So who were the government entities involved here? I, I believe that was we talked about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is a federal agency. And then there was the New York State Attorney General. What was the punishment and what do we know um, how this might affect the company and the industry from here on out? Yeah. So the the main punishment, the main result of the settlement is that the the companies and the two folks who ran it, who ran them. So that was uh, Douglas McKinnon and Mark Gray. They're permanently banned from the debt collection industry. So they can't um, have any kind of job that's connected to uh, debt collection or, you know, run a, a debt collection company. Under the terms of the settlement, they kind of split it up into two different areas. So um, because the two individuals involved, they had different roles. And one of them, uh, which is Douglas McKinnon, he he basically oversaw the whole thing. Um, and Mark Gray was what was described as a close associate of his um, in the court records. But um, 
So McKinnon was kind of over Northern Resolution and enhanced acquisitions. And so McKinnon and those two companies under the settlement will pay $40 million in redress to consumers and a $10 million civil penalty uh, to both uh, CFPB and New York. So $10 million to CFPB and $10 million to New York. Um, the other part of the settlement relates to Mark Gray, who um, was mostly involved in Delray Capital, that third company. So he, his part of the settlement, he was ordered to pay $4 million in redress to consumers and civil penalties of $1 million to CFPB and the New York Attorney General. But Gray and Delray Capital, their portion of the settlement, um, those amounts will be suspended, um, which means it's like inside baseball court stuff. But that means basically as part of their agreement, he was ordered to pay this, but really that's... uh, he's going to pay the smaller agreed upon amount. So, and that amount is um, just the the $1 million uh, penalty to CFPB. And instead of $4 million in consumer redress, it's $10,000, which is significantly less. What this reminds me of, looking at uh, the types of tactics these guys used and the complaints that were made against them when you and I worked at Amarillo Globe News and I covered uh, crime a lot of times, breaking news, and a lot, we always got these uh, memos from the police department, watch out for this new scam, watch out for this type of scam that's happening. And you'd have people call uh, you know, elderly folks and say, hey, we've got your, your grandson uh, in jail, if you don't send us $1,200, he's going to be prosecuted. And a lot of them, people calling to be, uh, pretending to be officers of a court somewhere, pretending to be the sheriff's deputies and telling people that they have a fine. And so, I mean, it, it looks, it's just so similar that it's really surprising to me that a company would have taken these these tactics as part of their business. Yeah, I mean, it really plays on people's fear. And uh, something I've heard from people who work in uh, the consumer financial uh, advocacy realm, I guess you'd say, uh, they've said that, you know, companies like this, they target people who are particularly vulnerable. So um, like the elderly, um, they're they're known to target them. And uh, so... It's definitely something that there are so many Americans who are in debt. Um, it's it's something that um, you know folks should be paying attention to and and be aware of. So we've been talking to Big If True founder Molly Bryant about her story on BigIfTrue.org about three big debt collection companies that have been banned from the industry and who face fines after violations of federal regulations. Be sure to head over to the website and find that uh, story. You can find more details on the website as well as some of our other coverage. So let's change gears a bit. We've spoken in the past on the show quite a bit uh, about allegations that tech companies are censoring conservatives either by kicking them off of social media platforms, by shadow banning or killing traffic to their sites. 
As we've stated before, there just is not evidence to support that. And today we have a few metrics which show uh, some on the right have actually seen their audiences grow. Molly, can you tell me about some of the differences, uh, some of the changes that have occurred in that landscape over the past couple of weeks? So one of the things one of the things we talked about on the show was the social media summit, which was uh, an event at the White House where um, basically it was called a social media summit, but no social media companies were invited. And it was basically an event to kind of complain about how uh, those companies are treating conservatives um, with the assumption that uh, they are hurting the conservatives audience. But um, a story in the Washington Post from last week pointed out that uh, basically they used data from uh, Social Blade and found that 15 uh, individuals who had attended um, the social media summit had actually gained a collective 197,000 followers after the event. So it kind of actually promoted them uh basically and allowed them to reach more people um the other thing uh and i i wrote about this on big if true but um the gateway pundit and uh other publications have said that their traffic um was killed by facebook or google uh because of how they do search rankings. Um, but we have some evidence to directly, you know, uh, dispute that. And uh, this website called The Writing, they compiled some uh, Comscore data, which uh, Comscore does uh, tra- tracks uh, website traffic basically so um what they found though was that uh fox news red state the washington examiner and some other conservative sites um their traffic is actually up from last year and in some cases it's up by a whole lot so for instance red state um their total unique visitors increased by 126% from last year. And uh, Washington Examiner, their their traffic is up 100%, which is a lot of percent. It's a lot. So um, they're uh, actually increasing their reach. Yeah, I mean, that's that's more than double. Double for the Washington Examiner. Uh, more than double for Red State. And I mean, those companies have been around for uh, several years. It's not like they're brand new. So it's a pretty good jump in a pretty short amount of time. And it said, uh, you said that the WAPO story mentioned only 15 of the people who had uh, uh, attended that uh, social media summit increased their followership by almost 200,000. And that's just 15 of those people. Yeah, I mean, they they crunched the numbers and it was actually a 75% jump over their number of new followers from a similar time span before the event. So on the, in, on the misinformation front, another thing we've talked about before are how uh, social media accounts, different actors who have different um, motivations 
can manipulate the words that people say, sometimes doctoring videos, sometimes just mis- uh, contextualizing something that someone says. Over this past week, um, there was a bit of a, a news and social media dust-up when Marco Rubio had retweeted a different account that had quoted Ilan Omar as saying something that she did not exactly say. It removed a line, a single line, and some context from uh, a statement that Ilan Omar had made on Al Jazeera more than a year ago, like uh, from February of 2018. Molly, can you tell me what it was that was said and kind of how this got mixed up in the social media sphere? Yeah, sure. Um, So I guess the best thing to do is just read the statement. So um, this is from uh, an Al Jazeera interview. um, And here is what Omar said. She said, I would say our country should be more fearful of white men across our country because they are actually causing most of the deaths within this country. And so if fear was the driving force of policies to keep America safe, Americans safe inside of this country, we should be profiling, monitoring, and creating policies to fight the radicalization of white men. So the part that was removed was the part that said, uh, and so a fear was the driving force of policies to keep America safe, um, that part. To provide some context for this, uh, this was an answer to a question from an interviewer who uh, had basically asked her if there was a legitimate fear that some people had of Muslims and of uh, the religion of Islam because of Islamic terrorism. And so she's, she's replying as to say that if the fear that people have is a legitimate measure for the actions we undertake as a society, then because the number of terroristic incidents often uh, come from right-wing terrorists and they're often perpetrated by white men statistically, that, that we should be afraid of radicalizing white men more than Islam. Again, I said that this was from February of 2018, uh, but it got picked up by in this story by the Christian Broadcasting Network or at CBN.com. And they had attributed this quote to Omar as saying, only I would say that our country should be more fearful of white men across our country because they are actually causing most of the deaths within this country. And then they say in another part of the uh, interview, they completely wipe out that line that adds the qualifier. If fear is our, as our motivation for, uh, for action. And then uh, it continues on with the quote, we should be profiling men, uh, monitoring and creating policies to fight the radicalization of white men. Yeah. And, and this is kind of something we talked about before, before the show, um, before we started recording, I, I feel like taking out that part of the, of the quote, I mean, it does take out a little bit of context, but if you take it out, the rest of the sentences, I mean, they still say the same thing. It doesn't completely change the meaning to take to take that part of the sentence out. It was kind of how I thought about it. I agree with that. I would say that 
little parts like that are important today because it's a lot easier to put words in somebody's mouth if you have fewer words there to navigate around. And so I think taking away the if fear is our if fear was the driving force of policies to keep America safe. I think that um, without I think her statement without that line provides a much harder uh it, it looks like a suggestion, like she really is saying we need to profile, monitor, and create policies to fight the radicalization of white men. Rather than using that as a counterexample, it makes it look like that's something that she's really pursuing. And while the, the statement doesn't change all that much, when people are taking this out of context, they're putting it into, um, into social media accounts for consumption by people who already feel a certain way about Omar or about the left or the right or however. Um, like, again, I think that she was using it as a counterpoint to the question that she was asked in the uh, in the interview is that it basically is fear of Islamist terrorism in the society is that justified? And... I think that people are recontextualizing her words in order to say that, no, we shouldn't be afraid of Muslim men. We should, we should be afraid of white men. And I think what she was saying is that we should not be afraid of either, honestly. But that uh, I think that she was trying to do it in a way that came off as confusing, that she was trying to make the point more artfully than she did. Then they allow that piece of information, because again, it doesn't matter what Ilan Omar meant for a lot of people, the fact that they have that quote up there allows them to grab that and repost it or point to it. And the damage is done. Yeah, I mean, I doubt the people seeing this on on Twitter are going to have are going to know the context of why she said that statement, because it's definitely unclear from just the words she said, it's definitely unclear that she's talking about um white supremacists or white nationalists or something like that like it yeah those words are not anywhere in the in the statement right and you know that's that's something because uh when people are engaging in a continued conversation a lot of times they allow other words to stand in or concepts to stand in and with the way that with the way that social media influencers and uh, commentators, modern commentators, not just on TV, but in the blogosphere, people uh, talk radio figures, things like that. Like it's not, it's not important almost what the original context was, because if you can have a soundbite, if you can have a quote and you can make it sound the way that I feel like they've just given up taking what people really mean and what people say and holding that up for for judgment or ridicule like these days you got to be really aware of what it is that you're saying because they will take any little piece of it out of context yeah and just because of the way that you know again the original problem just because of the way that the quote was edited like it it makes it very confusing to to people you know to know what what she was really getting at I feel like I I would need the whole question to understand this and just looking at what sh- these two 
like kind of butchered sentences that does not make it clear. Hard Reset this week was hosted by me, JC Cortez. Justin Sanders was out. This episode was produced by me. Our theme is Oh No by Hartle Road. Hard Reset is available on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe and rate us to help people find the show. Hard Reset is a podcast from BigIfTrue.org. We're nonpartisan and nonprofit. Support us at BigIfTrue.org slash support. Subscribe to our newsletter at BigIfTrue.org slash hard reset.